I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. Our scripture lesson for the morning is a portion of a prayer by King David, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. And uh, I invite you to stand for the reading of this portion of God's holy and inerrant word. King David prayed, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. <clears throat> Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. The scripture I read to you a moment ago is a bold and daring prayer of King David. You remember King David was the greatest king the nation of Israel ever had. The Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart. And in this prayer, David invites God to invade his personal privacy and to examine his innermost thoughts of his heart and mind. Now, most of us Americans would not be comfortable opening that, that much of our inner space to God or anybody else. Oh, yes, I'll grant you there are a few of us who are different, who share everything on either TikTok or Facebook or Twitter. What they had for breakfast and what shoes they're wearing and what the dog did yesterday. But most of us are not that way. We really do treasure our privacy and protect it. I used to think that my email address was fairly private. I mean, I shared it with friends, family, some of my businesses that I frequent. Now I realize it's not private at all. Every politician in America knows my email address. I must receive 30 a day. I'm forever deleting. I try to unsubscribe. They ignore me. Thank goodness the election will soon be over and maybe some of that stuff will stop. King David prayed fervently because he was in deep trouble. I mean, on every side, there were hostile nations and armies attacking Israel. He even had trouble within his own family. And in Psalm 139, he denounces those who misuse God's name and even hate God, he says. And facing such enemies on every front, David desperately needed God's help. And so he prayed with urgency. And friends, we're not in all that different a situation today because we gather at a time in America 
of widespread and varied crises. Inflation and a volatile stock market is stealing our savings and forcing some low-income people to make choices every day of food to eat or clothes to wear or rent to pay or even medicine to buy. Russia has invaded its neighbor and is threatening to use nuclear weapons. Deadly drugs are streaming across our southern border, killing our young people. Our leaders in Washington are as divided as the public they represent, and our Methodist denomination is in the process of dividing because of a disagreement about the authority of Scripture. Now, the Bible is very clear about what you ought to do in a time of crisis. It is to pray, and prayer should never be a last resort. Oh, no, first resort for the people of faith. The Bible says, God declares, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. If you recall the Gospels, only one lesson did Jesus' disciples ask Jesus to teach them. And it was not how to preach. It was not how to heal people. It was not even how to build a church. They simply asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. Because they had watched Jesus. They knew what a prayer warrior he was, often getting up before dawn to go out in a lonely place to pray. They knew that prayer was the primary conduit through which God the Father was funneling power into God the Son. St. Paul gave us this command, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Way back when George Washington was inaugurated as our first president, 1789, History tells us that he got down on his knees and kissed the Bible. And then he led the entire Senate and House of Representatives to a nearby Episcopal church for a two-hour worship service. And guess what? There is no evidence that the ACLU sued him or the Congress in protest. Thank the Lord. Now, my guess, if I were to ask for a show of hands of those of you who pray every day, I think most hands would go up. But you know, you know as well as I know, that sometimes we pray almost casually, perfunctorily, sporadically. I mean, think about it. In our worship service earlier, we, we said the Lord's Prayer. We know it by heart, and how often do we simply pray? Pray it by rote and never think about the words we are actually saying in that great model prayer. Uh, the evangelical pastor and author Chuck Swindoll makes a great suggestion about the prayers we say before meals, mealtime prayers. He says, after the meal is over and the dishes are being put away in the dishwasher, Someone in the family should ask, does anybody remember anything that was said in the prayer before the meal? And if no one can, then the whole family ought to come back to the table and pray again. 
King David's prayer in Psalm 139 is an antidote for casual prayer. And today in America, because of all the crises we are facing, casual prayers are not sufficient. America's need for revival is too urgent for sporadic, perfunctory casual prayers. God is offering us David's prayer as a model for our prayers. And his prayer includes three requests. And I want us to look at each one. And as we do it, I want us to ask, do I dare to pray like that? First, David prays, Lord, probe my heart. Probe my heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. And know my anxious thoughts. Now, most of us, if we're honest, don't want God to probe too deeply. No, no, no. That makes us nervous. We feel a kinship with old Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden after they had sinned. You know what they did? Hid behind trees as if God couldn't see around a tree. And sometimes we hide from God. But not King David. He invites God to probe the innermost regions of his heart and mind. Dare we to ask God to do the same for us? The second part of David's prayer. Lord, diagnose and eliminate my sin. In verse 24, he prays, see if there is any offensive way in me. Most of us, if we're honest, will admit there's a whole lot of mess there's a whole lot of X-rated stuff in our hearts and minds. Oh, yes, there's some greed in there. There is some lust. There's some meanness in the kindest of us. There's some meanness. There's a whole lot of selfishness. There's even some racial prejudice. We don't like to admit that, but we know it's true. And we sometimes try to hide it. But not King David. He actually invites God to turn a spotlight on those messy parts of his heart and mind. And do we dare to ask God to do the same for us? If money is my secret love, do I dare admit it to God? And as an assist in God helping me to cure that, Am I willing to give the first 10% of what I earned to God's work? If lust is my temptation, do I dare admit it and resolve to stay away from anything of a pornographic nature and any dangerous relationships? And it doesn't take a genius to know what a dangerous relationship is. If I'm addicted to anything, is God calling me to allow the Holy Spirit to help me break that addiction. I have in my backyard an outdoor fountain powered by a little electric motor. And through a little funnel into a concrete basin comes a steady flow of water. And the sound is really delightful. It'll almost put you to sleep. But you know what I found over time is that basin... Even though the water is continually flowing, it collects impurities. Even turn the water a different color. 
And so from time to time, I have to pour a little Clorox in there in order to cleanse that basin. Inviting God into the depths of our hearts and minds is sort of a divine antiseptic, helping us keep clean and healthy in God's sight. And that brings us to King David's third request in his prayer. Lord, lead me in a Christ-honoring path. No, David does not actually name Christ. He lived a thousand years before the birth of Jesus Christ. But he anticipated the way Christ would lead. And St. Paul wrote that the saints as far back as Moses drank from the spiritual rock that was Christ. David's actual words were these, lead me in the way everlasting. Well, what is that way everlasting? Jesus told us. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. So if we would pray like David, we must first ask God to make my personal life glorify Christ. Now, I think most of us know what that means. We know that it means to set aside some time each day for reading something from God's Word and talking with Him in prayer. We know that it means to avoid language that dishonors God and would be offensive to Him. We know that it means to avoid bad habits. We know that it means to be faithful members of Christ's church. And we know that it means to offer a word of witness when God gives us an opportunity. I saw a splendid example just a couple of weeks ago on television of a witness for Christ. Some of you know the name Pete Hegseth. He's uh, an Army veteran, a TV news commentator, and author. A week or two ago on television, he and uh, several others were talking about parenting. And Pete Pete Hegseth said this, Other than helping your child trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the greatest thing you can do for your child is to see that he or she gets a good education. What a fantastic witness that was. Don't you know that there were thousands and thousands of parents across America who heard that, and many of them, by the power of the Holy Spirit, were inspired to ask have I had a witness for Christ in the life of my child? To walk in a Christ-honoring path also means to glorify Christ publicly. We must stand for truth in the public sector, where Christian values are often controversial and where we could face criticism and even rejection. Have you often heard this warning, never mix religion and politics? Yes, you have. And if by politics you mean partisan politics, that may be good advice. God neither endorses Republicans nor Democrats. The emblem of the kingdom of God is neither a donkey nor an elephant. The emblem of the kingdom of God is a lamb the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But if one define po defines politics as the arena in which the crucial decisions of our culture are made, 
We must not be absent from that arena. If we are, the devil will own it. The late great Chuck Colson used to quote a Dutch theologian who said this, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ does not cry, Mine, mine, mine. In the 1960s, the Supreme Court tragically took prayer out of our schools. And that was the start of a general trend in America to take faith out of the public sector. To make faith a strictly private matter confined to the home and to the church. We Christians must be bold enough to resist that trend and to take our faith into the public sector. What would it mean to glorify Christ publicly? Well, John's gospel tells us that Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. That means Jesus Christ is both absolute truth and unlimited love. Well, how can we blend the two without compromising one or the other? We glorify Christ when we stand up boldly for truth and do it winsomely and with grace. St. Paul said it like this, speak the truth in love. Are we willing to say publicly that abortion is morally wrong, but still show compassion for young women encumbered with unwanted pregnancies. We must help South Carolina develop a law that clearly denounces abortion as morally wrong, but provides some flexibility for those rare, tragic conflicts of one life with another life. Are we willing to defend the Bible's definition of marriage as a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman while at the same time demonstrating love towards same-sex couples? Are we willing to declare publicly that a person's birth gender is not a mistake, but is a gift from God while still extending compassion toward those who suffer from gender confusion? Are we willing to publicly declare that all lives matter and that all races are equally valued by God? Now, if we do that, some people are going to call us racist. And if they do, are we willing not to respond with hostile rhetoric? In April 1999, the terrible massacre at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado, shocked the nation. Twelve students, one adult, were slaughtered. And one month later, Daryl Scott, father of one of the victims, was invited to go to Washington and speak to a subcommittee of Congress. And I want you to hear a portion of what he said because it illustrates 
how to take the faith into the public sector. This is what Daryl Scott said. I am here to declare that Columbine was not just a tragedy. It was a spiritual event that should force us to look at where the real blame lies. Men and women are three-part beings. We all consist of body, mind, and spirit. When we refuse to acknowledge a third part of our makeup, we create a void that allows evil, prejudice, and hatred to rush in and wreak havoc. A spiritual presence was in our educational system for most of our nation's history. Many of our major colleges began as theological seminaries. What has happened to us as a nation? We have refused to honor God, and in so doing, we opened the door to hatred and violence. My son Craig lay under a table in the school library and saw his two friends murdered before his very eyes. He was praying. I defy any law or politician to deny him that right. On that awful day, April 20, 1999, prayer was brought back into the schools. Do not let the many prayers offered by those students be in vain. We must protect our God-given right to communicate with God. God is what we need. End of quote. That grieving father took the truth back into the public sector. And so must we. King David's prayer in Psalm 139 is an urgent call for bold and daring prayers. The crises in American culture today are too deep and too drastic for man-made solutions. I recall these words from the late great Adrian Rogers. <clears throat> when trials come, don't wring your hands. Bend your knees. John Wesley prayed and revival came to England. Jonathan Edwards prayed and revival came to New England. 30 years ago, Mount Horeb was a small rural church. And then Pastor Jeff and a band of believers began praying regularly and faithfully. Today, Mount Horeb is the largest and fastest growing United Methodist Church in South Carolina. Mount Horeb is testimony to God's power channeled through prayer. In Psalm 11, David asked a question. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And then in Psalm 15, he answers his question. He wrote, in my distress, I called on the Lord. I cried to my God for help. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. Today in America, it seems that the foundations, if not destroyed, are certainly shaking. Big decisions must be made by us and our leaders. On November 8, we will determine what direction this nation is going to take when we do our duty and vote. 
In Europe, a dangerous war is raging, which may determine for the future whether an aggressor will be rewarded or punished. And United Methodists across the world must make crucial decisions in the coming weeks about whether the church will be guided by the Holy Spirit and Holy Scripture or by the secular standards of our culture. And in the middle of all these crises, our first responsibility is to pray. And friends, the times are too urgent, the crises are too great for casual or perfunctory or sporadic prayer. We must pray fervently, faithfully, boldly, and persistently that God's will prevails and to Him be the glory. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, we are the clay. Mold us and make us after thy will while we are waiting, yielded and still. Amen.